Well, we just sang perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. These words reflect our best intentions. They reflect our highest ambitions before the Lord, but they're not always true of us, are they? Sometimes we're actually resistant, restless, impatient. Sometimes we're looking around at everything but looking above. Sometimes we're filled with ourselves, lost in our worries, and don't feel his love. Perhaps some Sunday we should sing that version. No, it's good. It's, it's good and right for us to sing better than we live as long as we acknowledge the shortcoming of it. You see that in the Psalms, so we know it's good and right. It preaches to us what we should be. It reminds us of those rich times where it's been more true of our experience in our hearts and minds than it is right now. But it is also right at times to resonate with and to sing those psalms that ask, How long, O Lord? How long? God's word is wonderfully honest about the fact that waiting is hard. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs says. We've known it since we were kids that waiting is hard. Are we there yet? When is it? How long until? Those questions were more plentiful in our home before our kids knew how to tell time. But even now, with three or two teenagers, not three, two teenagers, uh, we still, I mean, so much of what we discuss is when? What's the plan? How long until? What are we going to do? We all like to know. We like to be in on the inside. And it's true of our daily plans, and it's also true of Christians regarding God's plans. We want to know. And we should know that God has told us some things about what's to come. In fact, there are many things we not only can know, but must know and must rehearse and recount and remember and live in light, in, in light of. But there are many things, many things about the future that he has not told us. And it's very important to our endurance as Christians that we know the difference between what he has told us about what's to come and what he has not told us but expects us to walk by faith in. So today we come to Mark chapter 13 in our study of Mark. And it's a chapter about what's to come, about timing, about expectations. It's Jesus' longest speech in Mark. And so, for the most part today, we'll try to tackle Mark 13 as a whole. All one Sunday, all 37 verses of it. Next week, we'll come back to Mark 13 and focus in on one part of Mark 13. But, but I think it's good for us to look at Mark 13 as a whole today, even though it's more verses than we normally look at, because it is a whole thing. It's almost solely Jesus speaking without interruption. And that's extremely rare in Mark especially. 
And so we should see the whole of what he was trying to communicate. Let's read it all together up front. Chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And when he will send, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, 
This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's quite a chapter, isn't it? We can first distinguish two parts to it. There's a quick discussion about the temple right away. And then there's a longer related discussion about the timing. The temple and then the timing. First, the temple. It's impressive but coming down. Verses 1 to 2 tell us this. It's impressive but coming down. The temple was impressive. Just as one of the disciples exclaimed here in verse 1. They came out of the temple And one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus himself acknowledged as much in the next verse. He admits these are great buildings. Now, you may have heard that the second temple, which was built under Nehemiah hundreds of years before Jesus, that temple was not very impressive, at least compared to the first temple, Solomon's temple. And that's true. I'm sure I've said that in many sermons before. But this temple that Jesus and his disciples were just in and coming out of and looking upon, it was that temple from Nehemiah's day, but it had been renovated and expanded by Herod the Great. For over the last 50 years, Herod and his sons kept adding to it and beautifying it. It was referred to as Herod's temple oftentimes. And it wasn't just a temple but a whole temple mount with many buildings on it. It was much larger and grander than Solomon's famously grand temple. Its footprint made up about one-sixth of all Jerusalem. Here's a, a picture of it, a drawing of it, one of the better recreations that you can find out there. You can see off in the distance various buildings and you can kind of gain some perspective of how massive this building was. It was 1.5 million square feet. That's huge. It was constructed of massive stones. The largest stones that have been found by archaeologists are, get this, 45 feet by 25 feet by 11 feet. Probably no one in this room has a, a room that big in your house. Maybe a couple of us, a few of us might have a room in our house that's about half that size. Maybe a big great room or a, a master bedroom or something. Imagine two of those. That's a stone. That's one of the bricks. The, the average size of, of these stones found at the temple is 28 tons. Just imagine in their day with their lack of technology compared to ours, moving those things around, 
builders today don't bother moving stuff like that around because they're looking for expediency, not grandeur. Uh, but not so in, in these days with, with Herod's temple. It was majestic. It was glorious. A first century Jewish historian, Josephus, he describes it like this. It was covered all over with plates of gold. And at the first rising of the sun, reflected back a very fiery splendor. And made those who looked upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. You can imagine shiny gold would be something like seeing the sun's reflection off of a mirror for us. And you know you have to turn away if that ever happens. They would turn away. It was so bright. It was like looking at the sun itself. The stones themselves were exceedingly white, Josephus says. It looked like a mountain covered with snow. It wasn't just beautiful and impressive and massive, but, but we should also remember that for the pious Jews of Jesus' day, the temple was a symbol of so much more than engineering and architecture and beauty. It was thought to be God's house. It's where his presence was, they thought. It's where his worship was done and where sacrifices were made. And the Romans may have occupied the land all around them and made the laws and enforced tax, but this was a massive enclave of Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish identity, Jewish security, Jewish safety. It looked so solid. It looked so secure, so permanent, like the kind of thing that we would expect to see some 2,000 years later, like many ancient buildings that have survived the time. It is impressive, but Jesus says that it's coming down. It's coming down, verse 2. Do you see these great buildings, Jesus says? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Those massive stones, some of them weighing a million pounds, there will not be one stone left upon another. Finally, Jesus is being explicit about something he's hinted at heavily in recent chapters. Remember back in chapter 11, he denounced this very temple. He drove out the sellers he, he closed up shop. He then cursed the fig tree because it didn't bear fruit. It was a symbol of Israel not bearing fruit, the temple not bearing fruit. It's not working. He cursed the fig tree and somehow related to that, he explained his cursing of the fig tree by saying, a whole mountain, temple mountain, could be thrown into the sea with just a prayer. He said that he was the true stone the stone. He said that he was that stone prophesied in the Psalms about the builders rejecting it or him. But God has made this stone, him, the cornerstone of a whole new temple. The disciples of all people should be getting the clues. Jesus has been explaining that he's a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of king than the one that they've been anticipating. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He would die and be raised in the third day. He'd be rejected and be exalted. 
He's been talking about a different kind of religion, really, than that which they have become accustomed to. And yet, one of the disciples, we're not told which one, is apparently still drinking from the old wineskins. He's still mesmerized by the beauty and the majesty, the impressiveness and the security, the solidness and surety of the temple in all its glory. He's not seeing the temple's glitz and gold and grandeur for the hypocrisy that Jesus sees it to be. So he's now explicit. This whole thing is one day coming down. Not It'll take a, a bit of a blow someday, or it'll take on some damage someday, or, or people won't like it eventually one day, but it will be totally decimated. Not one stone will be left on another. And that's exactly what happened. In the year A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But let's note this right away, right at this point. Let's note that this was a prediction that Jesus gave 30 years before it happened. He was explicit and he was rather specific about it. It was a prediction that no one made at the time or before. It didn't seem probable or even possible. No one was talking like this. The Romans... Yeah, they had their issues with the Jews, but no Roman was anti-Jewish temple. The Romans weren't making any threats against the temple at this time, and yet Jesus predicts a total decimation, a total deconstruction, and that's really what happened. The Western Wall, or the Wailing Wall, maybe you've been to it or seen pictures of it, it is still standing today, but that's an outer wall. It's a retaining wall in the temple area. I asked Dr. Giese about it this morning. He said it's like an exposed foundation to the temple. Even though it's made up of stones that, yes, are on one another, it's an exposed foundation. From that angle, it's almost a negative site. Or a testimony to the reality of what Jesus was talking about here. And sure, Jesus could be using a slight bit of hyperbole when he said, no stone will be left on top of another. He he can use hyperbole and, and still be right, still be true. No one in the first century would have quibbled with Jesus that he said, no stone will be left on top of another. Everyone who describes this from Jewish historians to Roman historians to Christian historians, they all describe it in terms of total decimation, unparalleled obliteration. Now, how could Jesus predict this? Well, he's God. That's how. He knows the future. He knows the future better than Nostradamus does. This is no Nostradamus kind of prophecy. I googled Nostradamus this week, found out that he apparently gave some predictions for 2015, in case you're interested. I want to write these down, they're really good. There'll be a large earthquake. That's an easy one, isn't it? Yeah, somewhere. He wrote, the hog will become brother to man. Whatever the heck that means. The rich shall die many times over. Okay. He also called 2014 the year of the horse. 
Now, those are some crap prophecies, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's not good at all. I mean, that's not prophecy. Jesus was explicit and specific. He knew the future. He's God. But why was he predicting this? Just, just that it would happen, or, or was he behind it happening? Well, he's behind it, isn't he? He's the mediator of a new covenant where temples are not needed and sacrifices are all done. He's bringing in a building-less church and worship. and We worship him in spirit and truth, not merely actions and places. We meet here in this room. It's a facility for a church. This is not a church building. Our religion is, by nature, a building-less kind of worship and religion. We just find it convenient to meet inside of a building rather than outside in the 90-degree sun. Jesus was unhitching God's covenant with man from a single nation and freeing it to its global purposes. Look at verse 3. And as he sat in the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John, and curiously now Andrew, asked him privately. So picture what's going on here. Picture the geography or even the topography, if you can. Jesus and his disciples come out of the temple. One of the disciples marvels at the temple's building. Jesus corrects his misguided enthusiasm and predicts the, the temple's destruction. And now they've walked to the east. When that picture was up, it'd be to the right of that picture there. They've walked to the east of the temple, from the temple mount to another, another mount, Mount of Olives. There's a valley in between. And so from there on the Mount of Olives, there would be a glorious, wide-angle, panoramic view of the temple and Jerusalem. And it's there that Jesus sits down. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they ask him privately a question about the timing. The timing. So first, there was a, a brief exchange about the temple. Now there's a question and then a long answer about the timing of it all. Verse 4 Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You might notice that there's sort of two parts to their question. When will these things be? The these things refers clearly back to the destruction of the temple. That's the closest thing. Jesus had just predicted it. Yes, they apparently had a long walk all the way to the Mount of Olives, but it's still on their mind when they get there. Jesus, when will these things be? Destruction of the temple and everything else around that. And that's the first part of their question. But they also say, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? That second part, that's consummation language. That is end time language. Accomplished. All these things. The sign, that's all apocalyptic kind of language here. Even though they put it in two parts, I think these disciples assume that these things go together. That the end of the temple would be the end of the world. The end of the temple would be the end of time. And when Jesus answers them, I think he makes clear these are two separate things. Destruction of the temple and the coming of the Son of Man, his return. Now let me pause here to say something about the structure of this passage because 
The sermon outline on the back of your your bulletin there, it, it breaks from the structure of the passage just slightly. It gets logical rather than following the flow of the passage toward the end of that outline that you have on your bulletin. So ignore the bulletin for just a second and look down on your Bible, more importantly. Let me show you the structure of this text. It's simple enough that Jesus predicts the temple's destruction. The disciples ask when. Then the rest of it is Jesus' answer. And at first there are three different parts to his answer. Three different time stamps that Jesus gives regarding their question. If you look down on your Bibles, just take note or maybe write these verses down if you want to read through them. Uh, read the verses later with these headings in mind. The first part of his answer, verses 5 to 13, he's offering here circumstances that are true for every age. These are the things he says that are not signs of the end. Because he says in verse 7, the end is not yet. Then the second part of his answer is about the temple. It's really the answer to the question they first asked. When will these things, the destruction of the temple, be? Verses 14 to 23, Jesus is discussing the destruction of the temple. And then the third part of his answer is answering the second part of their question, if we can keep this straight in our minds. When will all these things be accomplished? What's the sign? And there, verses 24 to 27, Jesus is talking about the second coming, the return of Christ, the end of time. And you say, well, what's the rest of it about them? We're not through to the end of the chapter. I see more verses. Yeah, the rest of it, he's giving two parables. Verse 28 is a parable. In that one is a parable, the fig tree parable. It's a parable for this generation, he says. This generation will not pass away. It's a parable about the destruction of the temple. He goes back to that. And then there's the parable, verse 32 to 37, of the doorkeeper. And that one's about the second coming again. So if you had any poetry experience, thematically this is doing an A, B, A, B. Okay, destruction of the temple, second coming, destruction of the temple, second coming. We'll kind of we'll, we'll keep those verses together in their like departments regarding these two events. So now back to that question that they posed to Jesus. When? When is it? What's the sign? When will this happen? There are three parts to Jesus' answer, three different timestamps. In his first answer to them is to say that they're, they're non-signs. They're non-signs in every age. Verses 5 to 13. These are, you think, signs. But they're actually not signs. They're false Christs, false messiahs that come. Verses 5 and 6. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. There were false Christs before Christ came. There were false Christs that came right after him. Even in Acts 5, you have Gamaliel there, a Pharisee, who, who refers to these false messiahs. He refers to two guys who you know, were messiah-like figures, but then they sort of fizzled out. He says, let's just wait and see if Jesus is one of them. There have been many who have come and gone since Jesus was here who called themselves some form of a Christ or some form of a Messiah or even God. 
Don't be deceived. They will deceive some people. They will lead some astray. And it's not just a problem for the last generation that walks this earth before Jesus returns. Deception is a real problem for every generation. It's also a problem for professing Christians. That's why Jesus addressed them, these disciples, and said, See that no one leads you astray. Don't follow another Christ. There'll be wars and rumors of wars, verse 7. But don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Wars, rumors of wars, these have been happening since the beginning of time, since there was sin on this earth and Cain killed Abel. That's the first war. Ever since then, nation has been rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Part of living in a fallen world. More wars just mean more sin. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is right around the corner. The end is not yet. The same with earthquakes in various places. Famines, verse 8. These are but the beginning of birth pains. It's the beginning of labor. This world is in labor. Romans 8 talks like this. It's groaning under the curse, waiting for the day when it will receive its full adoption and its fix. Until then, labor pains. We don't know how long this labor will go. It's been many hundreds of years since Jesus said this. The labor has not come yet. It's birth pains. Painful. Hopeful. It's coming. Don't know when. So be on your guard, verse 9 says. Be on your guard. And that's clearly the emphasis through Mark 13, all throughout. Don't be alarmed. Be on guard. Don't be led astray. Keep awake. Don't fall asleep. I count 10 times where there's that kind of language here scattered throughout Mark 13. Be on guard. Don't be alarmed because there'll be persecution. See in verse 9, they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Skip to verse 11. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. We fast forward in our Bibles, we see this exact thing being played out in the book of Acts, don't we? You see gospel proclamation happening, miracles happening, the fame, the testimony of Christ spreading. Then you see officials getting angry, you see arrests being made, you see the apostles being beaten, you see trials had and defenses given. And in those defenses, they preach the gospel. Acts 23 to 28, more than one-fifth of the whole book of Acts is simply this. The Apostle Paul under arrest, waiting for the next trial, then giving his defense. Then waiting for the next trial, then giving his defense. He's doing this very thing that Jesus promised would happen, and the gospel is spreading in the midst of the persecution, and sometimes directly because of the persecution 
Remember he says in Philippians 1, yeah, they, they think they've shut the gospel up because they put me in prison. What they did is they gave me a new audience, Roman guards. They all say, hey, they greet you because they're brothers in Christ now. Persecution and gospel spreading go together, and it continues even to this day. On average today, 322 Christians per month are killed for their faith. It's estimated that every month, 214 Christian properties are destroyed in this world. Religious persecution in China rose 300% in the last year. 300% in the last year. Need I mention ISIS and their gruesome execution videos of Christians... Need I mention that ISIS is now explicit and vocal about plans to come to the United States to bring their agenda here? What will we do if we find ourselves in one of those orange suits someday with a bag over our heads in the video rolling in a machete in front of our throats? What will we say? Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about it. The Holy Spirit, if we're his, he will tell us what to say. He will give us what to say. It's been shown throughout the ages to be true. We won't think it's the end of the world. We'll think it's what Jesus promised. It means the end is not yet. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be silent. Don't be surprised. Verse 10 says the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now remember, this is not this section is not about end times. We're not there yet. This is not about the return of Christ. So verse 10 is true for those first disciples, and it's still true for us today. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. There is a sense in which the gospel had been preached to the nations, to the whole known world, even in the first century. In Colossians 1, Paul could talk about the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit. And Paul could end his letter to the Romans by talking about Jesus having been made known to all nations. The book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome. For their tense and purposes, the uttermost parts of the earth. That was Rome. They weren't thinking America. They weren't thinking indigenous tribes in New Guinea or something like that. Yes, we know from Revelation 5, 9, that one day in heaven there will be a multitude, which no man can number, from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. And so we, we send the gospel out. We go to faraway places. We go to dangerous places. We go where he is not named yet. But however far it gets in our lifetime, the spread of the gospel in this world will not be a sign that Jesus is just around the corner. We will never get to all nations and then sit on our hands and just wait for Jesus to come back. We'll keep going. We'll keep sending. We'll keep talking. We'll keep being persecuted. These are all non-signs of every age. False teachers, wars, natural disasters, persecution, they all signal to us the end is not yet. These are the beginning of birth pains. Labor is coming. He is coming. He's coming again. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Instead, endure to the end and be saved.
The second section of Jesus' answer is a sign for this generation. There's a sign for this generation. I have this generation in quotes because if you look down at, at verse 30, there Jesus is talking about this generation. It will not pass away until all these things take place. And what he's talking about there, as he is in the earlier section, verses 14 to 23, is again the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in the year A.D. 70. Notice the shift in verse 14. Remember, he was talking about non-signs before that. But then verse 14, but when you see, there's something different there. When you see the abomination of desolation. That's the sign. That's the beginning of his answer to the disciples about the timing of the temple's destruction. It's a phrase borrowed from Daniel. Daniel 9, 11, and 12, I think, all refer to the abomination of desolation. Something that's an abomination to the Lord, and it will be a desolation of a place. It was a promise, a prophecy given to Daniel. For hundreds of years, hundreds of years after Daniel, the year 162, when Antiochus Epiphanes would march into the Holy of Holies of the Jewish temple, set up an altar to a foreign god, and sacrifice a pig to it. Well, Jesus is using that language, abomination of desolation, and he's pointing ahead to some other event like that. That's why he says, or maybe Mark does, let the reader understand He's pointing ahead to the events surrounding the destruction of the temple that takes place in the year A.D. 70. Now, it's difficult for us to understand how important the year A.D. 70 was to these Christians. It is far more important to their life, thought, etc. than 9-11 is for Americans. Because we're so far removed from A.D. 70, we need to think more about what actually happened there and why this is a prophecy given in the Bible. Remember, because we're so far removed, it seems like it's not important to us, but those to whom Jesus was speaking in Mark 13 were not far removed from it. They'd go through it. Those to whom Mark was writing, probably in the late 60s, were starting to see it already and were on the cusp of seeing it to the full. Here's the story. From A.D. 66 to 70, there was the Jewish revolt, the Jews revolting against the Romans. But it coincided with a civil war amidst the Jews themselves. There were three or maybe even more different parties or, or factions within Judaism, the zealots causing the most trouble for everyone. The Roman general at the time, Titus, eventually led troops straight into Jerusalem. And because the Jews were civil warring, hardly even noticed the Roman troops marching in for their demise. And that's what happened, demise. The result was the bloodiest, nastiest war of that time, one of the nastiest and bloodiest of all time, despite the fact that it was relatively short. We have detailed accounts from Josephus and, and Tacitus, the Roman, and, and Eusebius, the Christian. Josephus tells us that 1.1 million died, most of them Jews. Josephus tells us 
97,000 Jews were captured. He says that 500 crucifixions were taking place daily. Can you imagine? The bodies were stacked like cardboard on the side of the road. People had to step over dead bodies or crawl over them. Famine was so great that it's said that some mothers ate their children. The Romans kept offering terms of peace, but the Jews refused to surrender the city. Those who talked anything about a possible surrender to the Romans were killed immediately and painfully by the zealots. Eventually, the Romans then besieged the Temple Mount itself, and they burned it to the ground. We don't know who said to, we don't know exactly who did it, but it's Roman soldiers of some sort. They totally decimated this temple. So Josephus tells us, as the flames went upward in that temple, the Jews made a great clamor and ran together to prevent it. They spared not their lives any longer, nor suffered anything to restrain their force. In other words, they fought, they fought valiantly, but especially when the temple began to burn, they fought aggressively. The Roman historian Dio says the same thing. He says, the Jews resisted with great ardor, but once the temple caught on fire, some impaled themselves voluntarily on the swords of the Romans, others slew each other, and others leaped into the flames. He says the only victory was to perish together with the temple. The temple is being killed I will die with it, in other words. So with all of that in mind, now let's reread what Jesus says here in Mark 13 with these very specific and somewhat unusual instructions. Verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation, nor will ever be. That's exactly what happened. It's exactly what Jesus' followers did. They fled. There's no record of Christians fighting against Rome in these wars. No record of Christians fighting Jews. There's no real record of Christians dying in Jerusalem, despite 1.1 million Jews dying at the same time. It's because they fled. Because Jesus said it would happen. He told them what to watch for. They obeyed him. They left. They split like he said. He wasn't telling them to flee persecution. You know he teaches, expect persecution. He was teaching them here to not entangle themselves in this specific political cobweb. He was telling them to not fight, to not protect the temple, to not bear the judgment that God was placing upon that Roman Jewish context, and to not be the means for God's judgment upon that Jewish-Roman context. 
Oh, many of them would die a martyr's death for Christ. To die a martyr for Christ is a good thing, a noble thing. But Jesus was insisting here, none of mine are going to be martyrs for the temple. It's on its way out. I've told you all these things before. And here's what this meant for these first century Christians. And by the way, it also has marvelous implications for us, even though we were never in Judea in the first century. I'm sure you're wondering, how does this apply to us? Cool, Jesus predicted something, it happened. Uh, the fact that there's no temple is fine with me. I didn't get burned, didn't know anyone who did. How does this relate to me? Well, Jesus gives us a parable. And he gives us the application of this very thing. Verse 28 to 31, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. You'll know I'm near. You'll know I'm with you even to the ends of the age. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. These first century Christians, when they saw what happened, knew that Christ was near. At the very gates. How much more us? We know he's near. He's even nearer now than he was then. He's at the very, very gates. They knew that Jesus' words would not pass away. He said these things must take place, and these things did take place. The temple passed away. That great Roman empire passed away. The zealots passed away. Heaven and earth will even pass away someday, but Jesus' words will never pass away. What in this world is passing away and you're putting your trust in it. What do you think he could never take away and it be good or right or safe? Know what is passing away and what is enduring. And lastly, the last section is what we'll talk about next week. Here it is. If the first one, uh, first part of Jesus' answer was non-signs in every age, and then there was a sign for this generation regarding the temple's destruction, then lastly we see no sign for the final generation. And, And these verses refer to the second coming, to what happens, you see in verse 24, after that tribulation. That tribulation refers to the destruction of the temple and all about that in around AD 70. After that tribulation, Jesus says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Next week, we'll talk more about the fact that the Son of Man is coming. And when he's coming, when he comes, he'll come like a bolt of lightning, it says in Matthew 24. We'll just hear trumpets 
according to 1 Thessalonians 4. Signs. Well, if you can call stars falling at the same time he's coming a sign, sure. But he goes on in this parable, verse 32 and following at the end, to make very clear, you won't know. You won't know when. You, you must stay awake. Just like a, a man who's in charge of the door. He doesn't know when the guy's coming home he needs to be watching for. He doesn't know. He may come at night. He may come when the rooster crows. He may come in the morning. Therefore, be prepared. Therefore, stay awake. Therefore, don't sleep. The master is coming. Again, next week, we'll focus on that. But here, here's the good news about him coming again. If we're his, he's coming to gather us to him. The sun going dark and stars falling, this is no problem for us. We know the one who holds the stars. We know the one whose glory is greater than the sun. We know that he will make a new heaven and a new earth. All will be perfect, more than we can comprehend, and there we will worship him forever and ever, without threat, without worry, without wars, without famines, without earthquakes, everything sure and solid because it's built on him and him alone. And in the meantime, until we come to that new heaven and new earth, let us not be anxious, but let us, let us speak. Let us go, let us proclaim, let us represent him to this world. Let us not be surprised by trials or by wars or by earthquakes or famines or difficulty of any kind. He said these things would happen. Here's what we can depend on. His words will not pass away. This we know. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that this Jesus would be known and believed upon, and, and even some right now would come to a saving faith in what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection and would join us in an eager expectation of him coming again. May we as Christians be thoughtful, expectant, eager to see the Savior, praying often, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. May your coming, Lord Jesus, may your word and your promises, may your plan in your glorious ways be our song, our praise to you. Help us even now to sing to the king who is coming again to give to Jesus glory, the lamb that was slain. May you, Lord Jesus, be the joy of our hearts and the confession on our lips and the praise in our minds and tongues today. For your namesake we pray, amen.